We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Rarick Reamer for December 5th, 2023. Today's senior healthcare consultant, Colleen Deegan Ejack, will report on the alignment between the American Medical Association and CMS on split share DM visits. Lori Johnson has the latest coding news. Tiffany Ferguson covers the social determinants of health, and Dr. Reamer presents her talkback segment. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a man whose holiday decorations are the brightest on the block and are plugged into an outlet behind his neighbor's garage, Chuck Buck. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Thanks, Clark Anthony. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 580th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Good morning, Erica. Erica, welcome back. You were missed last Tuesday, but fortunately, Angie Comfort substituted for you. Well, I missed you too. I brought my son who was in he was in town for Thanksgiving. I brought him to Detroit to see my in-laws. Oh, that's very sweet. Hey, as you heard Clark Anthony announce your longtime friend and senior healthcare consultant, Colleen Deegan Ejack, has returned today. She's going to be reporting on the alignment between the American Medical Association and CMS on EM split and shared visits. So what's your reaction to that? Well, Colleen always has really great insights for us, and I'm looking forward to hearing what she has to say today. Very good. So, Erica, what's the topic for your talkback? Well, Chuck, I'm going to share some of my insights um, on caregiving for dementia patients, which unfortunately many of us of a certain age need to deal with. So that's what I'm doing today. Excellent topic, Erica. We look forward to hearing your talkback. And now it's the time for the Talk to Tuesday Coding Report with our good friend Lori Johnson. And good morning, Lori Johnson. Good morning, Chuck. Welcome back, Erica. And hello to our listeners. It's hard to believe that we are at the end of the year. I thought that I would review the year-end check uh, checkup to help with your preparations for 2024. There are new CPT codes for January 1st, 2024. So that means you need to check or update your charge master with the new revised or deleted codes and watch for the January 2024 addendum B for changes in status indicator, such as inpatient procedure designations. The new payment rate for for professional fees begins on January 1st. And remember that CPT updates on a quarterly basis. It's not just a once a year thing. And review the new codes with coders to prepare them for new procedures that the facility might be performing starting in 2024. There are new HICPIC codes for January 1st, 2024 as well. And the same thing, you need to update your charge master with those new revised and deleted codes. Check your prices. Make sure that your prices are in the right range um, because you don't want to leave any money on the table. And some of the HICPIC codes are procedures. So you want to review those codes with the coders to make sure that they're comfortable assigning a HICPIC code as a procedure code. And the HICPIC codes also are updated on a quarterly basis, and you can find them on the CMS website. Schedule your inpatient and outpatient coding reviews, and think about what your focus is going to be. Is it going to be we're looking for missed charges, we're looking for missed reimbursement, we're looking at coding accuracy, or I need to have information for my um, coder's annual performance review. So 
as you plan that review, you want to think about what is the focus of the review and determine the time frame to review. Remember that the federal fiscal year started October 1st, 2023, um, and that would be fiscal year 24. Um, your charge master must be updated by January 1st, 2024. Again, we talked about there's new HIC-PIC codes, new uh, CPT codes, um, and there's a issue if you don't do the update because you could be missing charges, you could be missing reimbursement, um, so you want to make sure you do that. Um, review the revenue cycle key performance indicators. Um, identify which areas are not performing well and develop a strategy on how can we improve this. Utilize technology that is available to improve your revenue cycle. And it may be um, helpful to establish quarterly meetings to review key performance indicators. And then lastly, discuss education needs. And typically this comes out of when you're looking at your key performance indicators, there may be um, issues that are brought from that, say, oh, we need some education. So the conversation should include everyone in the revenue cycle. And that means the coders, the billing specialists, patient improvement staff, utilization review, case managers, patient access, and physicians. Um, determine um, areas for education and the timing of when that should be. Uh, plan the type of education that will be fen beneficial for that area because not the same education doesn't work in every area. And at, assess the results after you do the education and have some time to apply it. Um, make sure you're getting some bang for your buck that you're spending in education. So with that, I hope that you all have a wonderful holiday season, and we will see you all in January 2024. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Lori. And I know you're going to stick around because I know that we are probably going to have questions, uh, and we I know we're going to have some time at the end. So thanks a lot. Um, that was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, very much. And thank you again, Lori Johnson. Folks, it is Tuesday. It's December the 5th, and you're listening to the last live Talking Tuesday broadcast for 2023. Stand by. Are you a coding pro, or are you just starting your career? MedLearn Publishing has something to make your life a whole lot easier. Introducing the 2024 Peripheral and Cardiology Coding Charts your key to accurate and efficient coding for cardiology and peripheral procedures. These color-coded charts provide a visual connection between procedures and codes, helping you navigate through inconsistent position documentation and subtle differences in similar procedures. Now until December 20th, when you grab your 2024 peripheral and cardiology coding charts, you'll get a whopping 20% off. That's more than a $43 savings. Just use the discount code ICDCHTC24 at checkout. Don't miss this opportunity to streamline your coding process and boost your accuracy. Visit the MedLearn Publishing Bookstore to order your copy today. Here now with the Talk News report on the social determinants of health is Tiffany Ferguson. And good morning, Tiffany Ferguson. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, all. 
Um, I wanted to talk about this morning uh, about maternity deserts. So it's been about six months since I last reported on the growing concern of maternal care, and in particularly the known issues of maternal mortality rates among African American women. A couple of weeks ago, Timothy Powell reported on CMS's birthing friendly designation icon. However, is the icon really enough? I'm not so sure. So the responsibility still seems to lie heavily on the provider's side. And I'm concerned that we have not seen the depths of our maternal health crisis. And here's why. So last week, yet another maternity ward, this time in Monroe, Alabama, closed its doors after many last-ditch efforts to preserve a much-needed but severely underfunded resource at their hospital. In Monroe, where the population grapples with about 22% poverty rate, uh, residents now face the expectation of traveling beyond county lines to neighboring hospitals for labor and delivery services. This travel is expected to be for these individuals between anywhere between 35 to 103 miles one way just to get to a labor and delivery unit. The closure marks the third maternity unit uh, that closed its doors this year alone in Alabama, because of financial constraints and limited availability of willing providers to practice in the state because of the state's strict abortion guidelines. Physicians are not willing to take the risk and hospitals cannot survive otherwise to provide the much needed care to their communities. So in October, 2022, the US Government Accountability Office released a report on maternal health, urging for government support and intervention in the growing decline of obstetric services in rural areas since 2014. Over half of all U.S. counties no longer have hospitals with labor and delivery services as of 2018. Uh, Today, it is estimated that more than 2 million women of childbearing age live in a maternity care desert, meaning they reside in counties that does not have obstetric care. Many of these areas are rural. In 2022, it was reported that 13 labor and delivery units closed, and unfortunately, this number continues to grow. In California alone, 11 maternity wards closed in 2023, with only one maternity ward opening that year. So maternity care deserts have been associated with lack of adequate prenatal care, limited to no treatment of pregnancy complications, and increased risk of maternal death. There's the the number one reason of the closure for maternity wards is money. As Medicaid funds about 50% of all births nationally and more than half of the births in rural areas. The second reason is a national shift in the declining rates, um, birthing rates. And the third stems from the unintended consequences of more stringent abortion laws, uh, which has put OB providers in a difficult position regarding adherence to nationally recognized care guidelines and state mandates when prenatal complications arise. They're actually just providers are leaving those states. Uh, In review, CMS maternity initiatives, there has been a couple things that have addressed it, but really nothing's been helping on the funding front. Uh, The alternatives to combat this has really been um, the growing availability of telehealth to support prenatal care and a significant expansion and support for midwifery services. And with that, back to you, Erica. Thanks, Tiffany. That was Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany is the CEO for Phoenix Medical Management, and I would like you to stick around, too, because I have a couple of questions for you at the end or comments. Um, But uh, back to you, Chuck. 
Thanks, Erica. And uh, thank you, Timothy Ferguson, very much. And folks, be sure to read her excellent article on this very timely and important subject in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor. Senior healthcare consultant Colleen Deegan Ejack with 3M returns to talk to Tuesday today. And Colleen is here to report on the alignment between the American Medical Association and CMS regarding split shared EM visits. And good morning, Colleen. And welcome back. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning to you, of course, my f- dear friend Erica. And uh, of course, always I like to say I appreciate the opportunity to be back on Talk 10 Tuesday. So today I wanted to talk about the 2024 updates to split or shared services from both the AMA, the American Medical Association, and from CMS, our Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and most importantly, the alignment of both entities' definition of the substantive portion of split or shared services. Many of you listening in may know of this ongoing dilemma for many, several years now. Um, I do like to remind or educate everyone that annually, the AMA, the American Medical Association, they are the authors of the CPT code set, and then it's CMS that sets Medicare payment policies under their physician fee schedule. So again, many of you listening in know that the AMA and CMS are not always aligned on application of CPT and payment policy, but for 2024, split and shared services, we are seeing alignment, which I think is just great. So what is a split or shared service? I get this question a lot, actually. Um, so split or shared services refer to EM visits where provided where the visit is provided in part by a physician and in part by a other non-physician practitioner. They are working together during a single EM service in a hospital or other institutional settings. Uh, when we talk about non-physician practitioners, I get this question a lot too. We're talking about what we sometimes refer to also as advanced practice providers. Some still use the term mid-level providers, which most of them will cringe at when they hear you call them a mid-level provider because they are an independent practitioner. Um, so these are nurse practitioners and physician assistants. Um, and notice the definition includes E&M visits. So shared and split services only apply to E&M visits, which is also a question I get a lot. When we talk about institutional settings, we're talking about other outpatient visits, inpatient or observation services, emergency department services, um, SNF, and critical care. Office visits are not billable as shared or split services as these fall under the incident two reporting guidelines. Okay, so for 2024, um, during the annual AMA CPT symposium, and in particular, particular Dr. Peter Holloman's ENM services update for 2024, he mentioned that AMA's continued goal towards administrative simplification of ENM services to be more in line with how physicians think and practice today. So CMS, um, in the again in that in the Federal Register where they issue the final rule for 2024, um, they state that they finalized a revision to our definition of substantive portion of a split or shared service to include the revisions to the CPT guidelines, such that for Medicare billing purposes, the substantive portion means more than half of the total time spent by the physician or non-practitioner, non-physician practitioner 
performing the split or shared visit or a substantial portion of the medical decision-making. So let's remind everyone the three key components to medical decision-making, also known as MDM, um, as, as in the CPT guidelines are, first of all, number one is the number and complexity. There's three key components. The first one being number and complexity of problems addressed. Second one, amount and or complexity of data to be reviewed and analyzed. And third is risk of complication and or morbidity or mortality of patient management. And you must exceed, meet or exceed two or three of these key components when selecting your E&M level of service based on medical decision making. So again, CMS is saying we're, we're accepting the revisions in the CPT code set. Um, and that substantial portion means half the time of the total time or the substantive portion of the medical decision-making. So the AMA went on to further define what, what I call the parenthetical notes of the CPT book, um, the substantive portion. So they stayed in there, uh, the 2024 CPT code said, if medical decision-making is used, the individual who approves the care plan for the problems addressed and takes responsibility related to management risk is performing the substantive portion of the visit. That second key component of the AMA states, if the data used to select the MDM, only the person who's performing that independent interpretation or discussion of management or test interpretation may use those categories. So just that within that second key component, um, they're beyond ordering or analyzing tests or some components to interpretation, independent interpretation. So just that caveat when data is one of the components you're using. Um, and then that key three point, if the code level is selected using time, and I think this is really in, you know a key point, um, the professionals, the AMA states, who spends the majority of the total time, which is non-face-to-face time and face-to-face time, on the date of the encounter is who should be reporting the service. And then again, in the parenthetical notes, really important, the CPT code book says only distinct time should be summed for shared or split visit, meaning when two individuals jointly meet or discuss the patient, only the time of one individual should be counted. A few other notes, um, you know, for shared or split services, don't forget the FS, Frank and Sam modifier that CMS requires, states in their documentation, the medical record must identify both individuals who performed the visit. And then, of course, with critical care, I just always like to remind everyone, this is what CMS considers, I'm sorry, the AMA considers a time-based CPT code, so there's no MDM component to critical care, it is strictly time. Um, and again, but AMA, uh, again, outlines only distinct time should be summed and, uh, you know, meaning that one individual's distinct time is used for total time. And with that, back to you, Erica. Thanks, Colleen. I'm going to have more to talk to you about, too, so stick around. That was Colleen Dejan Ejak. Colleen is a senior healthcare consultant for 3M. Are you a clinical documentation integrity professional, a coder, or a healthcare provider? Are you seeking a breakthrough to improve clinical documentation? Here's good news. You're invited to attend a transformative webcast led by the renowned CDI expert, Dr. Erica Reamer. During this essential webcast, you'll learn how to enhance patient care, secure accurate billing, and navigate regulatory demands. Dr. Reamer will equip you with specific advice to motivate and inspire behavioral change. Learn strategies to increase buy-in, 
and empower physicians and other providers to refine documentation practices you can implement today. The webcast, Unlocking Clinical Documentation Excellence, How to Engage the Provider, is Thursday, December 14th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register at the ICD University Bookstore and click the link, Unlocking Clinical Documentation Excellence, How to Engage the Provider. Here now with our very popular segment of Talk Tuesday, it's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. Thank you. And uh, Daniel, you can put up my slides for the moment. So um, Rosalind Carter died a few weeks ago after two days on hospice. Her husband, former um, president, Jimmy Carter, has been on hospice for nine months. Seems like people are on hospice just like sutures, either too short or too long, but never just right. Hospice care focuses on providing symptom relief as opposed to aspiring to a cure. To qualify for the hospice benefit, a patient typically has a life expectancy of six months or less, and it may cover supplies and services which are not provided under regular insurance. It is well established that there is cost savings of hospice and well recognized that patients and families have a better quality of life, less pain, less emotional distress, and less guilt and grief. An article entitled Many Americans with Dementia Can't Get the Hospice Care They Need highlights that conditions with more predictable courses, like metastatic cancer, are easier to assign to hospice in that temporal sweet spot. The long goodbye of dementia does not lend itself to foreseeing the inevitable end. The article suggests that a model where patients and families are offered hospice palliation at the point at which the disease becomes exceedingly burdensome would be preferable. When I moved my father into a memory care unit at the end of April, we elected a terrific hospice provider called Miracle City Hospice. His nurse, Tara, and his aides keep me in the loop. The hospice company calls me weekly to see if I have any concerns. They take care of his medical needs, like providing wound care and incontinence supplies, his hygiene needs, like shaving and showering him, and his human needs, like being spoken to kindly and scratching his itchy back. Periodically, the hospice team reassesses the patient and determines whether they think the patient still meets criteria, including that limited life expectancy. They recertify the patient, and the hospice benefit continues, explaining why Jimmy Carter survived nine months on hospice so far. One of the things I would like to share with you today is that some hospices provide something called a bedside protocol when they think that the time of transition is imminent. This is when someone from hospice is present at the bedside 24-7 to ease the patient's passing. I was unaware that this was an offering, and I learned it recently when my father seemed to be actively dying. For those of you who are concerned, he rallied and he is still with us. One of the things the hospice folks learned from me, oh, you know what? I didn't show you my little, so um, one of the things that the hospice Um, folks learn from me is the existence of this app. It's called Recall Q. 
and it's an aid for memory loss and dementia. Um, just as a disclaimer, I want you to know I don't have any affiliations with any of the companies I'm mentioning today. Um, so with this recall cue, a dedicated um, iPad is aimed at the patient and it's controlled by the app on your device. So like on my, you know, my cell phone, I have the app installed and the baseline display kind of shows um, the day, the to- uh, the date, the time, the time of day, and then the weather. The user can post messages or pictures or music, and they can set the duration of the display. So what I'm showing you right here takes up the whole iPad screen and I have it kind of facing my dad. And so he's always kind of oriented to, you know, the day and the time. Um, and I can send him messages, um, or, you know, displays of love, but the, perhaps the most useful feature is the check-in video call. So this is like FaceTime without the receiver having to actively accept the call. Now, the app, when you start asking to do a check-in, it prompts you to be mindful of your loved one's privacy. But once you accept that warning, you can go into the video chat. And this is considered 24-7 video surveillance, even if you only pop in intermittently. So um, a lot of uh, institutions must have something that lets people know that they there is constant video surveillance. The iPad is stationary and you can only see one, you know, section of their room, okay? However, if you want a device that can be redirected, you might want to check out this thing called the Blink Mini Indoor Cameras. So the resident can't see you, but you can see them and speak to them through a microphone. There's a little blue light that indicates when the camera is engaged. I have both setups in my dad's apartment, and it's like having like a teeny tiny little robot. Um, But my father doesn't really recognize what I'm talking to him through when I'm using this. Whereas the iPad, when you're doing it like a FaceTime, he sees your face and he knows. So if you're caught in that sandwich generation, I hope you found this useful. I know it really has nothing to do with Talk 10 Tuesdays, but I just wanted to help you guys with something that I found that was very helpful. And I'd like to right now take a moment to thank Cheyenne Daniel and Chuck and Clark and everybody at Talk 10 Tuesdays and ICD-10 Monitor for all that they do for us. And to all of you listening, have a great holiday season. See you next year. We do have a couple of minutes for questions. Erica, I think there's some comments and questions you want to address. So let's go ahead and do that right now. The first thing I wanted to see, I'm I'm actually trying to look through, um, quickly look through what your questions are. Um, but I, I, I do have some question uh, points. So for the medical decision-making piece of it, um, one of the things I'd like to highlight, you know, why don't you bring Colleen and we can have a little discussion about this. One of the things I'd like to highlight is that when you do a personal interpretation, it has to be your interpretation um, for you to be able to take credit for it. So similarly, um, you can't double dick time. So if you are, you know, trying to do split shared in, in, as a provider and you're trying to bill for it, you can only really bill for the time that you can take credit for it. Yes. And if, if the two of you, like if you, you know, if you're doing um, group rounds, um, you, you, you know, and you're in the room, you can certainly take your time 
but you can't also you can't double dip. So like if you both if you and your APP were in the room for 10 minutes together, you can't say that that was like 20 minutes worth of time. So I, I, I'm, I'm sure, Colleen, you, you might just want to um, expound on how you really have to take credit for your own work product, either, whether right. it's doing them or time. Even though, yes, even though it is, uh, you know, team approach to the patient care um, and the patient visit, it's really your your cognitive when you're talking time, right? And remember, it's total time. So that's the non-face-to-face time and the face-to-face time. One of the two has to do the face-to-face. These are face-to-face visits, but that doesn't necessarily mean the one billing the service or who it's billing under. There's even a specific from the CMS that they're, you know, not, you don't, if you're billing, you don't have to have done the face-to-face time, but someone has to have done that between the two. Yeah. And the medical decision-making, you know, like, so, so what happens is, I was always a big pro- proponent when we were when they had the proposed rule and we were able to give our comments. I was like, "This is crazy! You cannot do it only on bill, uh, on time," because a lot of the time that we providers spend taking care of patients is busy work, right? You're clicking on the computer, you're you know going over to radiology, you're de- like a lot of the stuff you're doing, even though it is dedicated to that patient. It's kind of busy work and you don't need like the physician doing it. Um, but the thing, you know, where the rubber meets the road is the medical decision making. So I, I'm I, I'm sure that um, Colleen, you are glad that they've clarified it yes. and, that it's, and that they've settled on what they've settled. on. Right. And even in the Federal Register, I put the link in there. You'll see CMS talks quite a bit about, you know, they've delayed this over several years trying to figure out how to do this right and there was quite a, quite a, you know, during, when they released the proposed rule, and it, there's a comment period, right, just like there is for IPPS and, and the, you know, the OPPS, so same process. And there were quite a few comments, you know, really to make sure that physicians, clinicians were saying it's MDM. That's yep. where we spend our cognitive work and really wanting that to be part, you know, part of the criteria, um, which, again, I'm glad they settled on. Yes. Yeah. And and now I'm actually, Chuck, I'm going to we're going to go over a, a couple of minutes because I would like to actually say something to Tiffany and to um, Lori. So um, for Tiffany, I would like to say that, you know, one of the things that I could foresee when I um, went to medical school, one of the ways I paid for it was I got a grant where after I finished um, medical school, I could go do, I could serve. So like after residency, I could serve my time and that would be considered paying back my my um, loans. And I could foresee them doing some of that because I, I mean, it's very challenging um, because people want, you know, kind of want to live where they practice. So it, a lot of these deserts are places that, you know, physicians may not find as desirable to live in. Um, and also there's such a long, there can be such a long um, threat of malpractice because if there's a birth injury, I mean, it could be 18 years before it's, you know, like, like you're at the end of the time, the statute of limitations. So it, it can be really tricky and people are, re- you know, there are a lot of people who are not going into OB right now, who would have because of the whole, as you mentioned, the whole abortion um, issue. So it, it is really a difficult, difficult problem. You know, can you think of any other solutions to this? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's tricky that the, the, the reason for writing it was really a call to action because I was a little concerned that the focus from CMS has really only been on providers improving quality. And absolutely, that's important. But such a huge piece is just lack of funding for hospitals to keep these open. And what happens is actually the lack of providers. And I could imagine so many of them are overstretched. And so the additional services of at least midwifery services, telehealth for, for prenatal, maybe some expansion there. Um, I, at this point, I'm not sure if the states that really pushed the um, anti-abortion guidelines really intended that this was going to happen. I don't think that was on the forefront of their minds when they pushed these agendas. Yeah, I, yeah. I agree. Thanks. And Lori, one last thing. If there was one thing you would tell people to do, what would the one thing the most important thing be, do you think? Um, I think the most important thing out of the items that I listed today was make sure your charge master is updated because that impacts throughout the revenue cycle. You'll, if you'll get those deleted codes that are no longer accepted, um, the billers get those back and they have to put in another code. Um, and so you're doing a lot of rework or you could be just missing um, charges that would get reimbursement. So I think that's extremely important. Yeah. And I wonder if price transparency, if you if your charge master isn't accurate, if that can get you into the hot water there too. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thanks everybody. This was great. And Chuck, I am going to say have a, have very happy holidays and I'll see you next year. Great. Thank you very much. And that is going to be a wrap for this live edition of Talked in Tuesday. And I want to thank our panelists today. Lori Johnson, Tiffany Ferguson, Colleen Deegan Ejack, who reported the lead story. And of course, a very, very special thank you to my dear friend, Dr. Eric Rumer, for co hosting all these Talk to Tuesday broadcasts. And finally, Hillary Clinton said it best when she wrote, It Takes a Village. Here at Talk to Tuesday, we've been on the air for 13 years, and it does take a village. So I publicly want to thank those folks here at Medlearn Media who have worked tirelessly behind the scenes. Angela Corniger, the Medlearn Chief Operating Officer. Laura Baker, Bedlearn's live event producer, Cheyenne Lundy, our producer, Daniel Kong, our assistant producer, my dear friend Clark Anthony, and each and every one of you, our loyal listeners and viewers, thank you so very much. Our whole gang here returns on Tuesday, January 9th with another live edition of Talk to Choosing. Hope to see you then, and everybody have a wonderful holiday. Reporting for ICD-10 Monitor and Talk to Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck. Happy holidays, everybody. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.